So uh, welcome, guys, to uh, another episode of Diving Into Finance. This week, I am joined by no other than Mr. Mark Fairbrother, um, who is the FD slash CFO for Millwall Football Club. Welcome, Mark. How the devil are you again? <laughs> I'm great, thanks. Yeah, yeah, glad to be here. So uh, yeah, thanks for thanks for the invitation. That's right. Um, yeah, I think both of us were hoping this would be face to face. Do you know what I realised as well before coming on this? We weren't even connected on LinkedIn. Um, so I just popped you a little uh, little invite. Um, but yeah, this episode was supposed to be in person. We've both had scheduling issues. I've been in Manchester. Mark's been dealing with all the ins and outs of uh, Millwall Football Club. Um, I suppose to, to kick it off, what would be great is if you could just give everyone a bit of an overview of your background, how you got to the position where you are today, and yeah, just a bit of insight, really. Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, I mean, I've, I think probably like a lot of people, I started off uh, in audit practice straight from university. So uh, went in at PwC, thought I was going to be doing uh, sexy business advisory, um, going out to Shell and BP, telling them how to run their business at 21, and then finding out that <laughs> I'm going to a metal bashers in the black country, and I'm photocopying uh purchase ledger invoices for six years but no I, I i love my time at pwc but one of my clients when i was there um was aston villa football club so i went in on secondment when the head of finance uh left the club very quickly so um they needed somebody to basically document what he did as a role and get that ready for um any new person coming in and I loved it. It was it was such a change from um, kind of the timesheet lifestyle at PwC, and um, I think it was it was just an opportunity I couldn't say no to. I'm I'm an Aston Villa fan, so obviously that that helped as well. Um, so I was there for kind of four and a half years um, back in 08 to 2012. So we had a couple of years of um, crazy spending when all my friends used to say I was a terrible accountant because we were losing. 50 million pounds and then we had a couple of years of trying to kind of rein that in and um yeah it was a, it was a it was a great experience um and I after that I thought look for my own career let's go and take on a finance number one role um and that was in a kind of VC backed um university partnership which later moved into a schools uh partnership so a completely different sector um learned a lot uh obviously probably not where my heart lay so um three years there and then went to work uh, in rugby union at Gloucester uh as their CFO um great club really uh really enjoyable time and really nice to see kind of the difference between uh rugby and football both in terms of the size of the business but just how we kind of from a financial point of view how you manage all of that um obviously there's a, a lot of uh talk in the press at the moment around financing rugby and it is a challenge um but we were all geared up to try to be break even where possible but unfortunately market forces kind of make that really difficult as clubs are seeing now so again I was at Gloucester until 2019 and then early 2019 uh joined Millwall so I was approached to come here and uh I thought you know what the chance to come back into football um and obviously knew Millwall probably more as everyone does with their kind of infamous um record came down for a few games thought absolutely brilliant loved it the atmosphere was great the crowd were great the staff were great and it was an opportunity i couldn't say no to so uh arrived in 2019 had a 
year of working normally and then two years still working at home in Worcester with COVID and um, now moved up sticks and moved down to the southeast and um, yeah we're, we're kind of all gums blazing ready for uh, ready for next season hopefully go one better than we did this year. Fingers, fingers crossed. You're, you're right though. Uh, Millwall does have a certain notoriety, um, doesn't it? Um, just for, like everyone knows Millwall Football Club. Um, but it's interesting your background. Like you mentioned, you came from, uh, you know, a Big Four background. I think everyone that goes into the Big Four thinks they're going to be doing the sexy finance straight away because you're just like, oh god, we work with all these cool clients, we're doing all these awesome things um but you kind of were to be fair i mean a lot of people i speak to you know if if they had a choice or not everyone but they would love to work for sporting and it's such a different industry i think to numbers like you said 50 million a year losses you know it's unheard of for most like most people in finance you know you're looking at how do we save money how do we increase the bottom line what can we do to do that like how did you kind of fit into that because like like you said you must have been working with so many people or so many people in finance that you know are used to like looking at how they can improve those processes and I'm sure there was an element of how can we stop losing as much money but like what's the kind of mindset when you work for a business like that it's you know what we adopt the same mindset as pretty much everyone else um what you have to do is differentiate between all of the football operations of the rest of the business so we used to work on the basis of every single department, every single sub-business within the group has to deliver everything it can because that is what goes into the investment on the pitch. Um, you have to deal with that slightly differently. And obviously, this was pre-financial um, fair play. So um, it was we were going through an investment cycle in the playing squad. Obviously, that relates to player wages and obviously the amortization of the transfer fees, which is why we were losing so much. But Every other department in the club, we worked on the same philosophy of how can we look at growing income? How can we look at keeping costs under control or reducing them? And if every department can deliver an improvement on contribution each year, that's more that goes into the pots for uh, investment in the playing side before we even have to make a decision around. And it's up to the obviously, ultimately, it was up to the owner how much he was willing to invest into that playing side to, to further it um, up the table. And I, I presume, I could be wrong, but I'd imagine it's like you, your budgets and forecasts are based around where you expect to finish in the league, which um, and also where you finished last season is what directly affects how much money you, you have to utilise in certain things. So the further you are up the league, um, the better, obviously, the more money you have next year. And then you can obviously, because your assets are your players. Um, completely, completely. I, I mean... In the championship in football and same in the premiership rugby, it's not as linear as saying you finish two places higher and this is the additional income because we don't have merit payments. But obviously this year at Millwall, we've had a great year financially um, from an income perspective because we've um, obviously we've spent a lot of the season in the playoffs. Obviously, a lot more games are televised. The crowds are bigger because there's, there's more of a story. Um, in the Premier League, though, obviously performance it links there's meritocracy in terms of where you finish in the table and I mean one of the years um I was there we had when Gerard Julio was our manager we were two games to go we were looking potentially at uh the relegation zone we were a point or two off there and I think we had Arsenal and Liverpool to play and we won both games and finished ninth so from a forecast wow. perspective that's a swing of probably seven or eight million pounds of income um Jesus. just two games uh, obviously a sub even 
to, if you looked at today's figures, you're probably talking double, if not two and a half times that. But um, mm. because it was so compact that season, um, obviously great for us. But that year, I think we were budgeting to finish sixth. So um, slightly disappointing that we we did all that work and we still fell short of kind of our budgeted income levels. Yeah, I mean, it, I, I suppose that's the thing. When you work in a, it's a lot harder to forecast, isn't it? Because you have like peaks and troughs within the season where, you know, where maybe people are playing well um and maybe when people aren't playing um so well and obviously that affects the bottom line um what was it that kind of drew you to sport like um obviously I know we we had previous conversations before but I think you know some people really want to get into sport but was there anything that like particularly interested you um about that from a finance perspective um I think you wanted to get into I think the main one is it's such a diverse business um Obviously, from when I was working, say, with the schools and universities, we've got kind of wonky trade, wonky business. Whereas, obviously, here at Millwall, we've got um, ticketing, our hospitality, boxes, conference and events. We've got media. We've got our web income, retail, catering. There's 15 different business units that all generate income. And actually, each of them is pretty separate. So there's there's only you'd only find it in sport where you're going to have uh, kind of dealing with player contracts and dealing with investment in in player player contracts and uh, their registrations at the same time at looking at um, the purchase price of a barrel of beer for next season um, and <laughs> anywhere else you would not have that kind of that crossover because yeah I've been spending the last few months looking at our new brewery deal for next year and you wouldn't get that in a in a business of one trade because it's so important to us it's so important to the fans that we get that right but also we work hard to kind of keep the the prices low as low as we can for for the fans because we know that the, the just the nature of being a venue that's only open once a fortnight we can't charge the same as the pub down the road but it, it's those sorts of things that kind of it, i suppose the variety of what you get involved with and um yeah no two days are ever the same well, it's it's like events, isn't it? That's essentially what you guys are doing, um, which I think you alluded to last time when you're looking at someone's background. You know, someone that's been in the events or hospitality does generally, you know, have a quite a clear, um, you know, kind of background that links very nicely into into um, sport um, and the diversification. I suppose you don't really think about that when you think about football. I, I don't know why you just think sexy finance. If I was uh, thinking I was in a, a finance uh you know position in terms of a career and I thought sport I'd be like cool I've got to like look at just the budgets of the football players oh god I hope we sign x oh god, like how can we do that what would you say that's kind of the biggest challenge as well like in terms of because every finance team always has stakeholder engagement you know not issues but you know difficult conversations to have around budgets and stuff do you do you find that's kind of one of the biggest challenges within that is when you're speaking to these people about either future signings or contract negotiations and stuff or what what is the not not especially i think because okay. for us and for for a lot of clubs that's the that's our biggest cost it's our it's our mm. biggest strain on cash flow is obviously the investment in the in, in playing side so that is a decision that we we kind of take to the board level so um what we make very clear we present and we've just done it for next season we've presented our uh, a kind of draft budget for next year based on this is just before the playoffs and before the Premier League season was finished. So all the games were expecting the all of the different departments and kind of the contribution levels. And then in effect, if this is the proposed playing budget, 
this is the resultant um, financial result. And obviously, for the for the owners, this is the resultant cash requirement for the year. So we kind of spell it out on a pretty much down to the day that we'll need the cash over the next 12 months so that it makes it very clear to them. And then we have the conversation, say, if we want to then invest in a player registration, this will be the impact. And actually, it's as simple as saying, well, if you need X and you're going to add three million pounds to it, it becomes X plus three. But you explain when that will be. And um, the, mm. we've got a really good engaged board who understand it, who get it. Um, as I think the key one is I'm presenting, I have to present clear accurate information to them and if they've got confidence that that's been done properly then it, it that's 99 of the challenge done because if the board say we'll work to x the manager understands it the director of uh football and player recruitment understands it and we all work to the same the same strategy i think that clearly shows though how important finance is to the club because you know they need that accurate reporting they need to understand the costs associated they need to understand i suppose all the different scenarios um like i said whether it's a player whether it's the cost of beer which i never thought about to be honest um or ticket prices and all those things and how that affects the bottom well i suppose not the bottom line because you know the bottom line is not going to be profitable um but you obviously uh, know what I suppose the potential losses could be um, and without having you guys reporting on that, they would it'd just be finger in the air. Um, and like you said, when it's making a loss, I suppose it's, it's clear that the owner wants to know what that loss will be um, because it's, you know, they're not doing it for a profit. They're doing it because they're passionate about the club or, you know, they have goals where they want to do it and they enjoy uh, being part um, of that process. If we went, Back then, like, because um, obviously we, we discussed a bit about more when we come um, back to that again. In, in terms of, like, what, why did you decide finance? Was there anything in particular, like, because I think there'll be people that will be listening because this will be marketed to, you know, clients, candidates, you know, the market, etc. Um, that, are, you know, are considering they've done a university degree or maybe they haven't done their degree and they're looking at what career. What was it about finance that really interested you? And then like following up from that what was it that kind of kept you interested and you know made you you know take the successful career routes that you've taken so far um that's a really good question probably not the answer that people would be looking for but i, I mean i studied uh, banking and economics at university so a related field i wanted to go and work in banking three years of studying that um i didn't want to go and work in banking um because i think three years of studying asset pricing models and various complex things mm. it had lost its uh excitement i think the big five as it was at the time were very good at marketing how fun their jobs and careers were and um business advisory sounded a really exciting uh department and um obviously you didn't really understand what the word assurance and business advisory meant so um <laughs> when so that's where they get was, you yeah, and that and that was it. I mean, there were really all all the five were really prevalent at, on campus. Mm. So when it came to kind of my last year at uni, it was a case of I've got to I've got to think about getting a job now. Um, and because they were so well known to all of us, and because obviously they were very good at putting on events that involve free drinks, and um, it, it sounded <laughs> like a fun kind of uh, a fun career. And I think that was what that's what swayed it for me. I thought, look, I've got certainty after I finish university, which meant that the pressure wasn't on in my final year to the same extent. So I had a job sorted. Um, and mm. then, to be honest, I hated my first year at uh, PwC. I absolutely despised it. 
I couldn't think oh, of wow. a job, but I didn't understand what I was doing. I was photocopying invoices. I was ticking invoices to a list. I was making teas and coffees. And I thought, hold on, is this really what I want to do as a, as a living? I was obviously doing lots of exams that um, were taking up all my uh, free time, which um, I think we had 13 exams in our first year. So every while I was doing my professional stage exams, we had eight in four days after kind of 13 weeks at college every night I'd go home and it's like, right, I've got my teacher application ready. So when I fail and when I get sacked, um, I'll start in September doing my teacher training and I'll go and become a teacher because that's going to be uh, more fun. Um, and I think they got, I got to a point where all of a sudden what I was doing made sense. I understood the purpose of the work I was doing. I understood the kind of, I suppose, my role within the, the teams on the audits I was on. And as soon as I understood that, it kind of it clicked in my mind and I thought actually this isn't a terrible job this isn't this isn't the worst thing actually you're getting to sit with people talk through understanding their business and I think it helped that I started to get a lot more fun clients compared to some of my peers but I think just having an understanding of what the purpose I was serving meant that I got into it and I kind of loved it and had um, I'm not going on to comment to Villa. I'd still be at PwC now. I'd no doubt about it. Probably, really? look, probably looking a lot more tired than I am these days. Yeah, I was going to say you get worked hard when you work for the Big Four or what was the the Big Five. Um, it's so interesting. Though, your first year, you were you were ready to you know give it up, go to to teaching, and then it changed because I, I think a lot of people, when even when they leave university, get their first job, they don't like it's it's hard when you've done that training you've done that and then you've got exams after that which you in accounting is the typical route right ACA CMA ACCA um, yeah. and then you're doing that and then you're doing the grunt work you're doing the dog's bodies work initially for a period of time and then it's only like when you get further and further where you get to do the more funner side and sometimes especially when you're working for big four uh, or um, you do get worked so hard I mean the when we speak to candidates that are from that background, the hours that you guys have done um, delivered, I thought recruitment was long hours. It's not. We're part-timers compared to people in the big four because I, I suppose, you know, they're justified. They're charging their clients, obviously, for the audit and you're justified at whatever the hourly or daily uh, rate it is that you're doing that work for. And like, because uh, my missus is ex-Grant um, Thornton. I used to get charged out and you'd be working late. You'd like, should be in hotels, like delivering like audits and stuff like that and helping with um, any, any of that trial. What, what, like, how was that? Like from a work life balance during that period, that's six years, by the way, you know, I, I think after sort of people have qualified, they either move on straight away or they stay for life. So what was it that like, kept you there for like six years because it is it is hard graft and some I think you either love it or you hate it it sounds like you really enjoyed it what kept you there for longer and then what was it eventually that you went damn that's like I've, I've had enough or I, not I I've think, had enough but you know. but I think um <laughs> for, for, I, I I enjoyed it I had great clients I got on really well with them they were fun um obviously you're still doing the work but when I mean one of my big clients was Activision so basically you spend two or three months of the year out visiting them talking about computer games and obviously the performance they've got financial performance is linked to what games they're uh, working on selling and distributing and likewise with Aston Villa various other ones that they're actually a little bit more interesting so I think the variety of clients I had made it interesting but also I think once 
if you uh, if you sell your soul to the big four um they obviously do give you a lot of opportunities so i became a training tutor looked after kind of peer groups um went mm. to calcutta to look at our partnership between birmingham and calcutta office and um all of that I actually really thrived on. I think what you then didn't notice was the creep in working hours. And I was our audit group's work-life balance champion. So I had to sell the virtues of um, a good work-life balance because I was seen to have a good work-life balance because I would leave the office if I was in the office um, try and get, leave the office before 6pm and people used to make a joke about half day and I'd make a very sarcastic comment back about the fact that I'm better than them because I can leave on time <laughs> um, but what nobody used to see was I'd be in before seven o'clock um, because mm. you had that much work to do but I'd, I'd rather work seven till half five than half nine till nine o'clock at night um, but I think what that was the challenge I found actually that was one of the challenges when I left um, PwC fully my first few months at Villa, when I was a Villa employee, it was a case of, well, I'm not bringing my laptop. Why am I not bringing my laptop home? Why am I not getting emails? What do I do at night? And it's like, well, I just did what people do, which is you just go out or have dinner or mm. watch TV or whatever you want, because you're not having to go, right, I'm going to scoff my dinner down by half seven, because then I can do a couple of hours work. And then we can watch TV at 10 for a half an hour and then go to bed. And I think that's where my life had got to. And I think looking back, um, there was that much creep of additional working hours, especially my last year at the firm, because I was going for kind of the next stage of promotion up. So you're obviously trying to kind of tick every box. And um, the secondment was very much, uh, uh, as I was told, this ticks a box. This probably ticks a box two or three times over. So um, do a good job here. And obviously the firm will earn good money for, for you being out there. And um, I think I got to the point of going, hold on a minute, there's more to life than working kind of 60, 70 hours a week and working kind of one day at a weekend and, and it just being normal. Um, and all my friends who were in in that kind of field, it was their life. And um, it, it, you, it is, it, I think if you don't kind of take stock and just stop at one point and go, is this right? I think you just find that it naturally becomes kind of all encompassing. Yeah, I agree. I mean, like it's, it's even with people um here in recruit recruitment's changed loads so when i first started yeah like if i left at 6 30 you're like clapped out the door um like oh god part-timer those kind of uh, comments um because you know you were working till sometimes half seven eight o'clock at night trying to get candidates because that's when they finished work and stuff like that now the, the way the world's changed you don't have to do those ridiculous hours and i agree with you like uh, you, you like even then i got lost in a bit it's like you you work to live, not live to work. Um, and there's a lot of fun things you can do. I love my job and I'm sure you love your job as well. But there's there's things that I, you know, I quite enjoy doing outside of my um, day job. And it's interesting to hear, like you mentioned it before when we spoke that, you know, uh, the biggest challenge for you is when you left was, hang on, I don't have to be doing this. Like, why is no one like why am I not working in these hours and you, you know that's such an interesting perspective because you're not the only person we've spoken to people that you know come from that background um and you know they do have those challenges but I think after a while you begin to go like well actually like this this is this is great um and I, I think the big four they offer like such good progression like internally and stuff like that and the training and if you leave 
them to go into industry, you do have a lot more opportunities, generally speaking, than a lot of people have started straight from industry because clients obviously value the fact that you've kind of been through that baptism of fire. You've, you've, it's, it's, it really is a culture. You, you make it or you don't. Like even in terms of the exams, you have to pass a certain percent before. Otherwise, you know, unfortunately, it's within a lot of contracts. I don't know if it is now, but I know it was. Um, and, you know, clients know that when they get those people, those people are great. And it does open a lot of doors if you're successful and you want to go into industry. But there is obviously, as you mentioned, a great opportunity internally. Um, not if you want to sell your soul, I think, as you put it. But I suppose if, if you're willing to, um, you know, uh, work maybe some of those additional hours, put in those additional efforts in order to um, facilitate those, those clients and ultimately add value long term. Um, when you, so obviously you then went uh, obviously to Aston Villa. Um, you've, you've gone um, from that period of working at PWC very successfully, got to that point um, at Aston Villa. What You then obviously moved on a, a, again, but you went to a VC backed. Now I know VC backed is kind of all like, sometimes it can be like the PWCs, the industry, uh, <laughs> or it's, it's very fast paced. How did you find that? You obviously, you went from one culture, which is literally work, 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 get the work done, deliver, 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 great success. You're continuously, you know where you have to be to get successful. You then went to Aston Villa, different environment, obviously completely. Um, and then you went to another completely different environment again. What was it that made you go like, do you know what? I want a bit of VC. Um, I think, to be honest, a lot of it was more thinking about where I was in my career. So at Aston Villa, we had a CFO, that um, a great guy that I learned a hell of a lot from, but he was, he'd come out of retirement to just basically uh, take on the role to kind of, I suppose, keep the finances in check on behalf of the owner. Um, he worked for him um, previously at MBA. So I think I saw that there was a lack of progression in in the role I was doing. Villa were great. They funded me to do my MBA um, and all of the, the good stuff around my own development. But I thought, look, let's go and blood myself um, as a finance number one. Um, it's on my head rather than kind of I do 90% of it and then pass it to somebody else to kind of take the take the hits if it needs it. So I thought, look, I've got to, I think for my own career, let's let's take this step up and kind of be the the person in the firing line and um yeah i think it was it because it was uh kind of a university partnership again because of doing a lot of training at pwc and um i think i had a, an interest and a passion with that so it was an industry that i thought look i'm going to be and i was it was it was an interesting uh industry to work in it was really tough because of the vc backers and we were ultimately um our parent company had set up the university partnership, but it was a training company that had kind of very consistent profit levels every year. And we were the the, the new kid on the block that was the, the exciting entrant. So we're going to go through a rapid stage of growth, but it's about putting kind of backfilling processes, making sure there's not overtrading. And that was tough because obviously there was a lot of investment came into us and there was a high expectation around the level of growth. And sometimes you're having to put the brakes on that to go, we've got to make sure that we can backfill all the processes because of the, the the nature of it. And that doesn't always sit well with VC backers because they've got a very clear expectation in terms of obviously mm. uh, short-term financial performance. And um, 
that was the bit that I probably did disagree with me slightly was around the kind of short-termism with some decision-making. And um, that's the bit that kind of was the opposite of Villa where we would take, we would obviously, you'd be looking at an investment in a player and that might be a four-year contract. And with us in the university and with the schools, it was very much a case of, we've got to hit this number, whatever it takes, we've got to hit this number. And um, if you've got to cut costs, do it. And if it's awkward conversations, you're going to have to have people basically tough luck that's your job um and that was the bit that i kind of thought look i've learned a lot but thank you i'll uh go back to something i'm definitely more passionate about and um yeah i think it was it's taught me a lot and actually probably made me a much better person but i think i it wasn't the right choice for me to if i was still there today i think i'd be very unhappy in my job and i probably would have been uh booted out the door by them yeah, I mean, uh, well, fair, fair enough. I mean, VC, yeah, I think it does depend who you work for, but predominantly, yeah, I mean, they've got clearly defined numbers they need to hit, clearly defined targets. We need to hit these numbers. What do we need to do to do um, to to hit them? Because often, like, they might be pivoting for a sell or they might have specific goals. Yeah. They've got, like, shareholders they need to keep, obviously, um, very much interested um, in those projects. And, like, in terms of investments, it's really, it, like, it's, it's a clear strategy. They just want financial growth. Um, sometimes there is a lack of care in terms of, you know, what are the actual outcomes? What's the value proposition that we're building on? But, um, yeah, it's... It, that's why I was interested in it because, like I said, it's such a different from sport. Kind, of, they're kind of opposite ends, if I'm honest. Um, like completely opposite ends if you look at it from a from an industry perspective. Um, and obviously, then you went to Gloucester. Like, I'm obviously like, well, I was. I've told you before, like a, a quite a large rugby fan. And when we discussed obviously um, wasps and, you know, the financial situation of a lot of clubs, because obviously it just doesn't generate the numbers um, that football does. Um, but again, that was back into football. Now you're obviously at, at Millwall. Um, if someone wanted to get into like sport, like in terms of from the finance side, what do you typically look for? Um, I think you, you mentioned it earlier. It's looking at your background. I mean, we look, we don't necessarily look for somebody who's worked in sports. Um, certain roles obviously helps significantly if you've got that experience. But in terms of finance, if you've got experience in a, I suppose, a complementary sector. So um, kind of my finance number two here at Millwall, he's X two swords. So when you actually look at the the nature of the business and the way the business is structured. Obviously, you look at somewhere like um, Madame Tussauds, Alton Towers, Warwick Castle, it's very similar. You ignore the playing side of it, but it's ticketing, it's uh, food and beverage, it's events, it's event management, obviously the costs that go with that, stewarding, security, all of those sorts of things. So actually, as a crossover industry, that's great. And a lot of the kind of the event side, concerts, uh, venue side of things, that that's what kind of they those people jump out immediately because if you can see that they've worked in that environment they will understand that you've got so many so on a supply side you've got so many suppliers that perhaps only deal with one department in the business but and it may only be two transactions a year but you'll have probably a thousand of those and actually understanding that it's not necessarily 15 suppliers of raw materials in a manufacturing process and everything else is in-house there's actually you've got quite quite a few nuances that only those sectors would have yeah um uh, yeah i mean that's uh you know very interesting from 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 that perspective that 
you know you're looking for people that have not necessarily from that industry and I, I think last time like or when we had a discussion one thing you said that sometimes you can have people that are overly passionate and that's one of the issues with um working in sport is people that are you know, they're, they've been a Millwall football supporter since they were like three. Their dads, their granddads, great auntie, whoever else has been a Millwall. Uh, and, and sometimes that can actually, you know, not be the person you're looking for and can actually be the opposite problem. Like, um, like when you're looking within the interview process, is are there alarm bells if someone is like an out and out supporter or like um, overly passionate or like how... Like how yeah, do you react think, to that? I think we we we've I've done it before when we've been interviewing um <clears throat> actually at all the clubs I've been at. We'll quite often try and do an interview at in a lounge or a box because one of the things is especially um Villa was really easy because we have boxes just behind the finance office. So you'd sit in the box and if the person was talking to you and kept tilting their head to the right or kind of couldn't concentrate on the interview because they were looking out onto the stadium that's a pretty good sign straight away that they are perhaps conflicted a little bit in terms of uh, their, their reasons for the job. Um, we also kind of get a feel from them. Um, obviously, like everyone, we put um, adverts out for our own channels and we will get fans who apply. And I mean, two of the guys in finance are, are Millwall fans, um, but at the same time, they were, I suppose you'd say they were fans rather than fanatics. So they were able to show in the interview process and obviously from 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 since then working for us that actually you can differentiate the, the fan versus kind of the that the, the employee and that's that's pretty much what i was doing when i started at villa it's like a case of you don't want to get kind of starstruck seeing all these players um they are just other employees and okay there's some of them we've spent a lot of money on their investments that we've got to look at their value at the end and and as a fan, obviously you're looking in the papers, looking online and seeing we're bidding for somebody at X million. When you work there, actually the X million that you could be bidding, it's you're starting to think, well, what does that mean from a cash perspective? What do we need to try and cover for our own operations? What do we need to go and ask, borrow, beg still, whatever it'll be? So you've got to kind of have that mindset rather than, and I've had staff before that you can't tell which players we're signing when we're looking at cash planning because you'll see the excitement in their eyes who is it who is it who is it and it's a case of well i can't tell you because you, you you're an employee and you're that excited about the players you're going to be telling your friends and they'll be telling a friend down the pub and before you know it it's all over the internet well yeah like, I, I never even thought about that i suppose you could have leaks internally from the finance teams like, oh you never guess what um i know inside source or uh, whatever it is but it's interesting that you take someone into a position where if they are a real fan you know it's going to be difficult for them to concentrate because they're like oh god you know the teams the teams are like what's the score um because then like you want oh, it's, it's not will... it's not when the match is on um oh that would be that would be too cruel for them. i would i was gonna say you know they're like a millwall fan it's it's Do the final pitch side interview <laughs> yeah, just like, do you mind if we do this after? But, but still, I suppose you you would be in awe. You're in that setting. You're you're somewhere that you maybe as a child dreamed to play for, or you know supported, and you always wanted to be in that box. And you're in that setting. It would be very distracting. Um, and I can see how that could be a detriment because in in finance you deal with facts, right? Like every single thing has to be a fact. Like if 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 in your position as the you know number one in that finance team, like when you've got budgets you can't have like oh god if only we could scrape together an extra you know 500k to get so and so that would be brilliant 
all of a sudden that leads into you know the decision making process which obviously affects the actual i suppose you can view a club as a company it is a company you know they've got certain revenues and things they need to hit um and if someone is overly or not overly passionate but i suppose puts the fan first and the job seconds that's when you that's when you really get the issue it, it's also interesting like from, from your overall background you like so many people in finance when you speak to them they see their career roots as leadership and i, I think a, a lot of people don't understand the the challenges within leadership which there are many um you know there's there's always pros and there's cons and there's great things that happen when you see someone's personal development how did you like how was that transition to you like what what were the biggest challenges you faced because obviously you went from obviously pwc where you did you know like you said start helping with the training etc and stuff like that then you went into uh, and progressed where you were the number one within a you know um, a business whereby you are managing those people what, what were the challenges you faced I think a lot of it, and this was probably more uh, Aston Villa than anything, because I'd come in, um, again, doing some financial advisory beforehand. So I'd come in um, as one of many, many department heads. Um, it's how do you kind of take that next step up? And um, for me, it was obviously doing my MBA, but also it's proving your own credibility. So mm. sort of team like finance, it's and I, here I look after HR and a few other departments, we cross the whole business. We cross every department has to have some involvement with finance, with HR, with legal, with payroll, all these bits sit under me. And I think that's that's the key thing I was finding that most finance teams are very insular in terms of with finance and we tell people what to do. And I've very much I've always been of a background that, that it's, these are our customers in effect this is no different from the ticket office they know who their customers are it's our fans it's away fans it's this that, and the other in finance your customers are every single internal stakeholder and you've got to i've got to kind of lead by example and demonstrate that credibility demonstrate that kind of outgoing approach because i want my teams to do the same and i think that's kind of how i've stepped up in the leadership perspective is really shown by example so it's it's not sitting there going well i'm too proud to kind of roll my sleeves up and do it it's like look if you need me to go and do things yeah i'll go and do things but um yeah if, if you need me to uh pour some pints the other week as samples for fans i'll have a go doing it it's just that uh, you every, and then once the 50th person's made the joke about oh i'll have a flake in that it's like yes thanks um uh, i'm not gonna be <laughs> i'm not gonna be asked back yeah. into work in the bars on a match day but you know what, it's it, it's showing everyone that you'll roll your sleeves up and get involved. And I think if you can do that and also prove that you're credible, I think that's where you kind of win people over and they they understand where you're coming from. I, I completely agree. I mean, leading by example, if I look back on like, I know it's completely different, but on the great managers I had were the people that were willing to go the extra mile, no matter what it, what it was, like they they would make time to to kind of help you and that made you want to work harder for them um because not everyone's cut out for leadership either like if like you've i, I presume you've obviously hired people that are leaders before what, what do you kind of look for from that perspective because you can't really think, prove that you've led by example within that is there anything you look for i think a lot of it is, and a lot of our recruitment is personality fits i think mm. if people show if if and we interview in lots of different ways to kind of test different attributes of that and um a lot of it will be let's sit and have an informal chit chat and my second interview at millwall was 
with probably 15 different people. So every single, um, and, and it was, I mean, it was one of those ones that if, if, uh, if there was a pub nearby that, uh, on the ba- way back to the train station, I would have had a drink because I was mentally and physically exhausted. But 15 was... people. I mean, how, how did you even like, because if someone asks you one question, you then got to go to the Well, it was, it was kind of like, it was literally That's like a scan. There'll be one person in, then the next person. So it was a chance to meet lots of the kind of the different department heads, some of the directors, some of the uh, people. But it was five, 10 minutes with each person. So it was kind of an informal chat and and I think it's the, what they were looking is going, is this person on? Is this person kind of put his war paint on and kind of giving you the razzle dazzle? Like, look, I, I, or can you break this person down and find what their true personality is? And obviously, you just have an informal chat with 15 different people from different backgrounds. Some know what uh, my role is, some have no idea what finance do apart from. Um, their thought is as long as I get paid, then finance are doing their job. And you kind of go, but let's just chat. What What is it that you want from me if I was successful? You have that just quick discussion with them. But it was a great way of them seeing whether I had the attributes. And we do things like that. We ask, we, we tend to kind of find out a bit more about people's personalities and, and also kind of, I suppose, their values and see, does that align to the club? Because we want to make sure we get the right people in. And what we want to make sure is the people who come in will fit with the staff we've got and actually complement them rather than um, we don't want somebody who's coming in going, well, I, I'm i a ball breaker. I don't like people. I don't like this. And then you're in a people-related industry where you've got to kind of motivate a team, especially win, lose, or draw on the pitch. We've got to do our jobs kind of in the bars, in the in the shop in the ticket office so we've got to have people who can keep people motivated when things are going well and when not they're not going well yeah uh, I, I think that culture that personality fit is so key whenever you go to any business like I feel like if you go to the floor you can see what what the culture is within it um and it's, it's like anything you don't want an early divorce do you um I mean the the 15 people that's a lot though that's speed dating you have to impress a lot of people you must have been fantastic back in the day like a great you know, wingman. It, it, it was it was it was a great experience though because it, I'd never been through that. And again, we try and I think that's the there's people in this world, and I know it from graduate interviewing at PwC. There's people who are so well versed on interviewing. They interview amazingly, and actually, when you when they come in, then they're not. It's there. It's all style, no substance. So I think doing things differently in interviews is a good way. I mean. It takes a brave company to do it. And we tend to ask, I, I love to ask random, random questions. Ever since I was on an internship interview and I got asked one many years ago at uh, HSBC and I completely cocked it up. So um, it, what was the it, question? Do you remember? Um, well, it was the whole process was cocked up because I worked <laughs> at HSBC anyway. So I, I I was a little bit arrogant going going for my internship, being told oh, it's, it's nailed on. So I kind of I was back home in the Midlands, went out the night before with my friends, had a few drinks, quite a few drinks, got the train down to London early so I could go shopping, um, turned up in the city of London with a load of shopping bags because I'd had a day out in the big city. And then um, the interview went terribly. And then they asked me at the end, who's your role model in history? And I just sat there and went, oh, and I thought, who am I going to think of in from history? And I, I now I could answer like that. But at the time, I'm thinking... 
and I was thinking, who did I study at school? And it's like Hitler. It's like I can't. I really cannot say. Oh yeah, that that, that would have been a terrible. <laughs> I think I think especially on my mum's side, they would have absolutely murdered me if I'd said. That. But when I got home and said that to my parents, my mum said, "Who was the first person you thought of? Hitler." And I was thinking, Jesus Christ! It's like, and in the end, it's like, well, who else are you going to say? Old oh, Princess Di, Winston Churchill. And in the end, I just umdenard, and I think I said. Um, I think I said Ron Saunders, uh, the villa manager, and it's like, oh, oh wow. So needless, so, I think that's a bad. Answer. I suppose it, all they're looking for is how you back it up, though, isn't yeah. it? But but it's those kind of questions that catch you off guard. That I agree can sometimes break character um, in people that are really good at interviewing. Because I completely agree with you that interviewing is a skill set. Like we speak to some candidates. Um, that are incredibly like tech technically have the ability and stuff like that but they are just not good at interviewing um, and you sometimes you you speak to clients you tell them like look this is the skill set like ask them speak to their references understand the process because it's it's really challenging especially when it's a very technical role uh, like if it's like financial reporting all to do with IFRS and year end and all that stuff a lot of those guys aren't necessarily the best communicators in terms of like being able to explain what they do but they are incredibly talented at what they do um and you know interviewing is a skill set and they would probably give the same answer if they met with 15 people because that's who they are as a person yeah. um whereas that's exactly what I, I imagine they're trying to do is like what's beneath mark's mask what's he what's he hide? he seems too nice get someone else get someone else <laughs> and, and then they finished up going he's a buffoon <laughs> yeah well you got the job you got the job so you must you must have done uh done something um right there it's interesting that process i've never like to be fair i've never had anyone that's met that that many people i have had people that have met like one person like sometimes i see businesses that they have someone that's really like good cop bad cop in the interview process yeah. someone that's incredibly nice like okay and someone that's just literally down technical answers and you know why they're doing because one's like culture really nice da, da, and then the other person's like oh, i need to know if they're any good and, and like especially in vc businesses to be honest yeah. that happens very very a lot they're like oh thingy was lovely i'm a, i was a bit nervous with um so and so uh which is interesting what like you, you've gone through what got you into finance you've gone through your career we've gone through obviously um like why you went into leadership and obviously the qualities that you think like leading from from the front i suppose I, I are you glad you made the decision to go into finance and what advice would you give to someone that is considering it uh, yeah i love i love what i do and i think probably because in a smaller business like ours you don't just work in finance there's a lot of other bits and pieces i get involved mm -hmm. with which that's what keeps me kind of more interested i think that wouldn't suit everyone i think some people would rather just do 100% finance and obviously kind of concentrate on that whereas I'd much rather have the variety that a role in sport gives you um, and I think for for people considering finance I think it, it's such a wide remit in terms of what finance actually means um, obviously there's the, obviously what I'm doing now um, but then there's kind of more like you said more technical based stuff analysis obviously the commercial side of things and then obviously the reporting and uh taxation and accounting i think if people have got a passion for 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 those sorts of things or if they look they, they know that they're more analytical and actually they enjoy that it's a good um option to consider i think if people have no interest in 
analysis and looking for reasons and obviously that sort of thing it's not for them and it will I think if you make the wrong decision and I saw a lot of people I joined uh, PwC with just didn't gel with that industry because they just didn't enjoy the analysis the the the, the kind of the whys of when you're looking at two numbers why is that there how does that happen the, the discussion points that we use now in a day-to-day business why is why is it that ticket sales are down 15 10 for this match I know the answers but I've got to articulate them to the board and I can't just say oh it's because we lost the game before it's actually a case of well how much is that to do with it how much is all the other factors if you haven't got that kind of mindset then it's not for you but if you have I think then you've got to see what what facet of it really kind of excites you yeah I I I agree with you I think there's like to break it down into real major parts, I would kind of say you've got like the Transac, so obviously AP and credit control. Um, then you have like uh, the commercial, so like the business partnering, explaining the data so that people within the business can make clear decisions um, and explain to non-financial, uh, I suppose, stakeholders, very technical stuff in lamest terms so they can actually input that and actually use that to make clearly defined decisions that affect the business and then you're the technical uh wizards which i won't go into because there's so many different technical technicalities uk gap ifrs all the different things and there's more and more coming in every year and the year-end process and stuff um those are the kind of three main areas and then you kind of have um, leadership i think transformation is kind of turning into its own um it's uh, because it, it's 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 odd it's, it's kind of in between it and finance and change and everything like that i think that's kind of turning into its own hub but it does kind of fit within commercial um because you did a lot of commercial stuff to be fair when we spoke before um from that explaining to stakeholders all the analysis and stuff like that is like to me that's what a lot of people want to get involved with that's what we see a lot of and a lot of people from big four to be honest with you they they struggle to get into that immediately normally they have to do a technical accounting role obviously because very technical background and then move into analysis um how did you find that change um from like a very technical i suppose position to a very analytical although i believe you told me that you were actually doing analysis at pwc which might actually affect my uh, question here but never mind yeah i i I certainly wasn't (laughs) i I would never put myself down with the technical bods um I, i mean i had because of the nature of the clients i had there was revenue was the kind of the go-to point where I was a, I suppose, more of a technical expert than others. So I'd be the go-to person on various things of FRS, whatever it is, FRS 9. I can't even remember what it is now. Um, application note G, I can remember learning that off by heart because I had two or three clients that had it all in, um, obviously long before the days of uh, uh, FRS 102. But it was, that was the only bit that I kind of needed to know pretty much word for word, because we had so many complex revenue recognition um, routes on some of my clients. It was quite useful actually at Villa because there was a few things where we weren't presenting income correctly. And kind of, I got to put a bit of stardust on things to to to, to present things correctly, but without really not making an impact, impact on profit, but actually just presenting things so that we're comparable to other clubs. I think... Look, some people will not take to going from kind of that that technical route through to commercial. I mean, a lot 
I've just been working on kind of, like I said earlier, on our brewery deal. And a lot of that has been looking at obviously margins on products, looking at um, the variety of product, making sure that the, the mix is right, making sure that the margins are right for ourselves and our outsourced caterers. Um, so we don't have to put the prices up, but also making sure that commercially it works works for the club. Um, and the finance is probably 20% of it. And the rest of it is, is it the right fit? Are the fans going to like it? Is it going to work? All the logistical stuff and the operational stuff. And actually, that's that's where you add the value rather than just giving the financial analysis. I did a, a financial analysis before I joined when I was um when I was on my notice period, not that I was doing some work for my new employer, but that was some financial analysis that was sent to our commercial guys here to say it's not a good deal. Um, we could we could do better and we could save some money here that we can obviously then pass on, but we couldn't do anything because we were in contract. But I kind of flagged that up and that was pure finance. It mm. didn't go anywhere because it couldn't. Whereas now I get to kind of get my grubby paws all over it and actually can put the finance stuff in and present. So I presented it to the board and all the offers that I had and basically go, well, look, from a financial perspective, they all come out within two or three percent of each other. So we can ignore finances now, which is what we all want to do and go into the other important decision making which is around products is around mix it's around the 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 match with the club and the match with the fans so it was it's a good way of kind of doing basically doing myself out of a job by doing the analysis properly because actually you didn't need a finance person then really being involved once you've been able to kind of prove that you've got everyone to the mm -hmm. same level yeah um and I, I think that's something that a lot of people don't realize the impact that finance and understanding margins can have such a clear effect on a business whether it's like increasing bottom line whether it's strategies whether it's systems um especially in your role now where you've got like such a wide you know remit you're not like you said you're not not just involved in finance or involved in HR and all these other um, bits and pieces and from that standpoint you know the effects that understanding the numbers has it's obvious when you actually think about it you think like well who's looking after the numbers they're obviously going to be able to give clear concise information to help drive a strategy that makes us more successful um and you know ultimately i think that's why if we went back to i, I don't want to say covid but i'm going to say it um you know why some finance teams were saved people in those senior positions is because they needed that information uh, they needed to know like what the forecast would be if it continued at that trajectory, how that would affect it, what unfortunately cuts they needed to make. And they could only make those decisions because finance had given them those insights, which, you know, which is horrible to think about, but it was so important and it's so important within any business. Um, Mark, is there anything else you'd like to add? I appreciate we're, we're all coming up to our hour now. And uh, I know you said you had meetings and stuff. I don't want to... <laughs> No, I think just one of the points I, I think when you were just talking through that, that actually, which kind of it, it did, it, it rung in my head. And it was one of the when I was working with the boarding schools, we had a Chinese uh, investor. And one of the things she used to say to me, because again, we used to work on some of the contracts to buy one of the schools, basically six months worth of our lives going backs and forwards. And she used to take me to the meetings because she didn't understand what the solicitors were talking about when they were going through a 200 page agreement and she got really bored very quickly 
So she said, well, I bring you along because you explain it so I can understand it. And I think you were talking about earlier about how you engage with non-financial people. And that's definitely a skill. And that's a skill that I've had to learn and evolve. And it's now part and parcel. If I, if I understand, and this is what I used to do at PwC with the revenue stuff, if I can understand it enough, I can explain it in layman's terms. Whereas I think if I can't understand it enough, I explain it like an accountant and I will explain it using what piece of rules and various bits. And I'll use the technical terms because you hope that that kind of gets away. I think that's a big one that I've learned and a big one I have to use every day is if I started talking FRS 102 to anyone in this organization, including half the finance team, I think people will just be, be looking going, well, what's that? Is that a channel on Sky? I think um, <laughs> it, it's a case of you've just got to actually understand it enough that you can just explain it in just normal conversational terms. And I think that's a big challenge. And that's a definitely, I think if that would be my legacy that um, I've been able to kind of down, dumb down finance for all the people I'm working with. And they probably actually just go, he wasn't very good at his job because he never knew anything technical. But if you can kind of give away that impression that you're just a clown, but actually behind the scenes, there's some there's some science behind it. At least, uh, at least you know you're doing your job properly. Well, that skill is so important. I mean, like, like you said, if if finance can't communicate to, let's say, sales teams um, around commissions and X, Y, Z bonuses and stuff, or they can't communicate to marketing around strategies and what they can budget for, or anyone within the business and senior leadership and stuff, um, and they don't understand that, they ultimately don't understand their business because their business only runs if there's cash in the bank. Cash is king. If they don't understand that cash flow forecast or any of those things, um, it makes it incredibly challenging to be successful. We see a lot of, um, you know, client or oh, sorry, candidates and clients, clients that will advertise a finance business partner role, which is more of a management accountant um, and candidates that will say they're a finance business partner, but they're more of a management accountant, financial accountant or finance analyst. There is such a clear, uh, I suppose, progression route whereby you get up to that finance because a finance business partner to me or someone that has has to have shown that they can make that impact and they yes. have to be able to explain to you how their involvement in that process affected that. And if you can't do that, you haven't done that business partnering piece because that business partnering piece is about identifying, challenging and making a change, whether that's people seeing finance as the carrot and not the stick or from you know which system they're going to implement and how they're going to implement it, where they're going to save costs, what vendors they use. Um, there's so many different things. And I, I completely agree. I mean, that to me is like once you've mastered that that's almost like the holy grail because you can speak to anyone in the business then um and you can explain exactly what you've done and you can explain um so that people actually understand what your job is because uh people think uh, accountant don't they or if you work in finance they think oh numbers yeah making sure the numbers go and that's it that's literally the knowledge before i got into finance recruitment to be fair so i thought oh yeah they just do a few reports ping them in do the numbers make sure there's cash in bank that's it Show off, about which, show off about which formulas they know on Excel. Yeah, exactly. Get a sum if <laughs> up. Go on, go on, get a V look up. Love it, love it. Um, but yeah, well, that was a very good point, Mark. But um, yeah, absolute pleasure having you on boards. Um, and uh, thanks uh, for, I, like I said, I know I, it was my fault once. Um, and I know, you know, we've tried to rearrange this a few times, but really appreciate uh, you coming on board. And uh, yeah, thank you very much. No, no, thanks very much for having me. No worries. Cheers, mate.
in the sexy finance straight away. Uh, sexy business advisory. You just think sexy finance. If I'm going to a metal bashers in the black country and I'm photocopying uh, purchase ledger invoices for six years. When all my friends used to say I was a terrible accountant because we were losing 50 million pounds. So when I fail and when I get sacked, happy in my job and I probably would have been uh, booted out the door by them. BC and I completely cocked it up. I was a little bit arrogant. Went out the night before with my friends, had a few drinks, quite a few drinks. The interview went terribly. And I just sat there and went, oh, it's like, I can't, I really cannot say oh, yeah, that, that, that. And it's like, oh, oh well. It's like, what's beneath Mark's mask? What's he, what's he hiding? He seems too nice. Get someone else. Get someone else. <laughs> and, and then they finished up going, he's a buffoon. <laughs> yeah. Um, cool. Cool.